All right, let's get started today. I'm going to read the 133rd Psalm, and then we'll get started into a couple of things here. The 133rd Psalm, which is um, uh, just a beautiful psalm. It's one of the mo- to me, it's one of the most heartfelt psalms, and it's very short. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. It went down to the hems of his garments. It is as if the dew of Hermon were descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And that's the joy and the gift that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a promise of eternal life. And I thought today I'd do something a little bit different than I normally do, because uh, people watch this uh, church on the beach on video, and uh, I don't know if they watch all the way to the end or not, and one thing that I want to do today, rather than doing it at the end of the sermon, is to give a salvation call now. And so, um, two things on this. The first one is that one of the people that watches on video asked me to smile a little bit more. So, there's my smile. And uh, secondly, is the salvation call that I'd, I'd like to give and explain why Jesus Christ came. And uh, what I would hope is that if you're watching, that you would stick with this. It's only a couple minutes long, and then if you want to watch the rest of the sermon, that's wonderful as well. But this is something that's near and dear to my own heart. So I want to explain that I first accepted Jesus Christ in 2001 after simply thinking through the problem of human sin and reading texts of other religions around the world. I've read the Quran. I've studied uh, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism and all of these things. And these religions do not address the problem of human sin. God is the creator. God is infinite. That means that he created everything that we see around us, time, space, and matter. Therefore, he is before those things, and he is outside of those things. And because he created those things, and because we are a part of that creation, we are finite, and we have all sinned within this finite creation. And I can't deny that, and neither can anybody else. And because of this, because he is an infinite creator and we're a finite creation, there's a gap between us, which is an infinite gap. There's no way to restore the fallen bridge between us. It is impossible. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to be reconciled to God. It's something that God has to initiate, and no religion on earth resolves this problem. It is not a religion that will. It is a relationship through what God has done. And we don't need the Bible to tell us this. We can simply think it through on our own accord. Jesus Christ is the answer to this dilemma. He was born of a virgin. He was born of God. The virgin's name is Mary. God, the Holy Spirit, came into the womb of Mary and united with the this humanity within her. And therefore, he is the God-man. He is finite in the flesh of the person of Jesus Christ, and yet he is infinite in the, the second person of the Trinity, of the eternal Godhead. Therefore, he can put his hand on finite flesh, and he can put his hand on his infinite Father, and he can restore the bridge that was broken and fallen down so many thousands of years ago when our first father, Adam, sinned. Now, here's what the Bible teaches. It says that all of us have sinned, every single one of us, and we fall short of the glory of God. That deed is done, and that bridge is broken. And because we have sinned, we have earned death. It is what will happen to us, both in our bodies, we will die physically, but we also die spiritually because of what Adam did. We are not born spiritually alive. 
and there is only one way to be restored to spiritual life, and that is through what Jesus Christ did. When we die, because we are born spiritually dead, we will be infinitely separated from the God who created us. But the Bible teaches us that God is love. That's one of the principal tenets of the Bible. He is, if he is love, he is infinite love. And therefore, what he did is he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we can't live. He fulfilled the law on our behalf, the law that is God's eternal standard. And he never sinned in the process of obeying this law. He obeyed his father perfectly. And then he went to the cross and he gave up his own life for us. This is what we did. Because he's man, he is qualified to represent us as men and to pay our sin debt. And the Bible says that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And God asks us to do just one simple thing to be restored to him, which is to call out and to acknowledge your sin and to ask Jesus to take your place. To say, I cannot correct my own sin problem, but he can. In other words, we are calling out as Jesus as Lord. He died to pay that penalty that we owe, and he was resurrected by the power of God to prove that he is God. And so he's qualified as a human, but he is also qualified as God to make this bridge back to us. And God promises above all else that by the simple act of faith, you also can have eternal life. God will forgive your sins, and you can never, never, never be judged for them again. And personally, I would like to spend the rest of eternity with you, in fellowship with you, and to be counted among those who will receive eternal life because of what Jesus did. But the choice is yours, and the choice is yours alone. Nobody can make it for you. So right now, I pray in my heart that even in the deepest depths of my soul, that you will simply confess that you have sinned and that you need a mediator to stand on your behalf. And that mediator is Jesus Christ. He will reconcile you to the Father. He'll wash away your sins and he will give you the eternal life that you so desperately need and which you cannot have without his shed blood. This beautiful message of peace that God has given us is one of hope and it's one of eternal life and salvation. And if I could just ask for that one thing in this life, it would be that his message would change your heart too. The Bible says in John 3:16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is the gift of God in Jesus Christ. And I hope that you'll take that to heart. Now we're going to have Angelica play us a couple songs and then we'll go ahead and get into the sermon.
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for every gift, and that includes every affliction, because without the afflictions, we would not know what it's like to have good. Without warm showers, then we wouldn't understand what it's like to not have warm showers. And everything serves your purposes, and we simply need to look and understand why things happen. But we do pray for these prayer needs, and help us throughout the week to remember these things as well. And in all things, let us give you the praise and the glory and the honor that you are due, which is more than we could ever give. You are infinitely worthy of our, our praises and our prayers and our love. We thank you, God, for sending Jesus Christ our Lord and the cross that he bore on our behalf. We thank you for that gift and help me today to properly handle your word and to uh, bring it out in a way which will edify the people here. And I thank you for these gifts in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, apparently I don't need a Bible today, even though the pages are falling out because somebody has a, uh, a uh, iPad. iPad here. And I've never used one of these, so I hope that this will uh, bless you. But this is the Suffering Servant passage from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, 12. And it's something that we all need to remind ourselves from time to time. These words were written by Isaiah about 700 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. And the words are absolutely beautiful. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and a, like a root out of dry ground. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession 
for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord speaking of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross of Calvary. Today we're going to speak on Genesis 6, 5 through 13, and this is grace in the eyes of the Lord. The question is, what is grace? Grace is getting what you do not deserve. A good example of rain of grace is rain, where your neighbor may be a great guy and you may be a bad person, but it rains on both of you. God is giving you grace despite the fact that you don't do it. Grace is the opposite of mercy, which is not getting what you do deserve. We've sinned. We deserve hell. We deserve condemnation. We deserve eternal separation from God. And instead, he sends Jesus. He takes our punishment on on himself and we receive mercy so this is what grace is and this is what mercy is and today we will see that in a world full of evil one man was given grace just like Adam every person on earth descends from this one man his name is Noah his story is an amazing one on many levels and hidden within the text itself is a pattern which centers on the fact that we are not forgotten by God even when the world is collapsing around us, God is always there for us. God's eyes are always on his people, and he has a plan for each of us. The hard part is to trust him when everything else seems to be falling apart around us. The story of Noah is something we can cling to in today's world. As the forces of the wicked seem to be winning, God has secured his faithful in an ark which will protect them through every trial. Today. We're going to look through, as I said, Genesis 6, 5 through 13. And it shows us God's great displeasure at the wickedness of man and his judgment on their sins. Unfortunately, in order to understand God's grace, we must have it within a context which that grace can be viewed. This account about the pre-flood world and many others in the Bible after the flood are given not to depress us, but to show us that even in the midst of a world full of desperately confusing tragedies like earthquakes or tsunamis or war, God is in control and he is working out a wonderful plan for each one of us. If you are just willing to stick with it through the Bible, there is a ton, and I mean this, a ton of happy and uplifting stuff right there. And God's grace is evident throughout the entire Bible. But the Bible is a book of truth and truth often includes painful downers. Among Christian scholars, there is a term that is known as total depravity. What it does is it attempts to describe our state, our human state, as it's revealed in the Bible. Depravity is viewed by different scholars in different ways. And bringing this up is not meant to be a killjoy, but it will help you understand what the Bible teaches about us, about our relationship with God, and how we interact with him. In the book of Acts, Paul explains why these things are so important. It says, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, we need to look at the Bible from every single perspective, and not just on what makes us feel happy or uplifted all the time. If you present just a little bit of error to an unformed, unformed person, you have them in your grasp. And the question is, do you think that anybody that started out with David Koresh thought that in a couple of years they would be burning to death in a building in Waco, Texas? Or do you think that the people that started out with Jim Jones 
would say, oh, in a couple of years, I'm going to be in a foreign country drinking cyanide and ending my life. Nobody does that. Of course not. We don't go around looking for destruction. Instead, it creeps in and it finds itself in its place in the uneducated. So let's review very quickly these four views on what depravity means to the human being. The first view is known as Pelagianism. It's a big word. It's just simply a guy's name, Pelagius. He was a fourth century heretic. And what his view of depravity was is that human beings are born innocent and that they can cooperate with God. And this we know is a heresy. We've already gone through the first five books of the Bible. We see that we bear Adam's image. Even though we bear God's image, we bear Adam's fallen image. The second view is known as Arminianism. It's named after a guy named Jacob Arminius. And it says that human beings are somewhat depraved. In other words, there's good in human beings and there's bad in human beings. And that human beings can cooperate with God. This view is called semi-Pelagianism because it's got some heresy mixed in with some right thinking. The third view is known as moderate Calvinism. If you know who John Calvin is, he's the great uh, theologian of years past. And this view I would rather call biblical depravity because moderate Calvinism or biblical depravity clearly describes the state of man. It says that humans are totally depraved, meaning that our uh, image of God is marred. It has an error in it or uh, think of a, a pane of glass that's got scratches on it, but it is not completely effaced or completely erased. And this view teaches that man can cooperate with God. In other words, in the Bible, John 3.16, for example, says that if you believe, Jesus' own words, Paul says if you believe or if you call on the name of the Lord, we are given choices throughout the Bible. And those choices stem from the inside man. In other words, we are cooperating with God in making these choices. The fourth view is known as strong Calvinism. It says that humans are totally depraved, just like uh, moderate Calvinism or biblical depravity, but it says that the image of God in man is significantly marred or even totally erased, depending on who is, is speaking it. It says that humans cannot cooperate with God. And this in and of itself has to dismiss all of those verses that I mentioned where it says you must believe or that you must um, uh, call on the name of the Lord, something coming as a volitional act from the will of man. And the problem with strong Calvinism is that it ultimately assigns evil to God because we are given a choice to accept Jesus Christ or we're not. If we're not given that choice to accept Jesus Christ, then you logically follow that back, keep going back, keep going back, and eventually we have the fall of man. And man was created supposedly in a perfectly good condition. Well, if he fell and he didn't choose to fall, then you are ascribing evil to God, saying that God created him that way. It is not a well thought out process, but it is a view that many people hold. A lot of Presbyterians, uh, one person I read every single morning of my life, R.C. Sproul, holds this particular view, but it is not correct biblically. Total depravity in man is what we would say is extensive, but it is not intensive. And I'll explain that. Sin extends to every dimension of the person. We are body, we are soul, and we have a will. It extends to our body because we age, we wrinkle up, we get gray beards, whatever. 
and we also die. So it's extensive in that nature. It extends to our soul. Our nature, our very nature is sinful. In other words, we don't need, and I've said this before, we don't need to teach children to do wrong. They innately know how to do wrong. What we need to do as human beings is to teach children to do right. So it extends to the soul. It also extends to our will because we often really, really do things that we do not want to do. Even when we know that it's wrong, sin pulls us in a direction away from what is right. These things are actually self-evident if you think them through, and very few people would deny that those three things are true, that it is extensive, but it is not intensive. Depravity does not mean that we are as sinful as we could be. In other words, people go around the world and they do all kinds of good stuff in every religion on earth. There's people that go up and they pet little puppies on the head or they help old ladies across the road or maybe they make donations to charities and they don't let anybody know that they're doing it. They're just doing it out of the goodness of their own hearts. We uh, possess uh, dignity. We strive for excellence. All of these things show us that we are not as depraved as we could be. But apart from Jesus Christ, we are not as good as we should be and certainly not as good as we could be. We are not in any way able to please God with our works. And the reason why is because sin already infects us. And therefore, our works are unacceptable to God because we are already unacceptable to God. And the sin must be dealt with first. Just like today, I gave the, uh, the uh, salvation call first. We're trying to deal with our sin and then we'll work towards being a better person that God would want us to be. But the sin has to be taken care of before what we do is acceptable to God. Another thing about this fallen state that we live in is that although sin does infect us and it permeates us, it does not completely destroy us. In other words, we still bear God's image. So we cannot say that God's image is totally erased in us. The book of James, all the way at the very back of the Bible, says that we bear God's image. If you take the concept of total depravity too far, then it actually eliminates the ability to be depraved at all. The very definition no longer has any meaning. Why am I telling you this? The reason why I'm telling you this is because it is important. If you misunderstand the nature of God, then your interpretation about the things of God will be wrong. That's why the first sermon that I gave on Genesis 1 was completely about the nature of God. What is God like? Because if we misunderstand that, maybe we're going to be a Mormon. We'll be a polytheist, or we might be a Muslim, or we might be a Buddhist, or we might be something that has a misunderstanding about what the nature of God is like. If you misunderstand what man is like, which is total depravity, then your interpretation about the things of man will be wrong. And what does that include? It includes our relationship with God. And therefore, it's very important to understand where we fall in the scheme of things. So real quickly, I'm going to review it. What we believe is biblical depravity. It means that the image of God in us is marred, but it is not completely marred. It is not effaced completely. And we can cooperate with God. We have free will. It is an act of the volitional free will to say, I am accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. The more wrong you are, the less right you are. This is just the way things are. Will your walk with God be one that's close 
or will you only view him from afar? There's an Italian actress, maybe you've heard of her, Asia Argento. Here's what she said about the concept of depravity. What you might see as depravity is, to me, just another aspect of the human condition. I, I read that and I couldn't believe it. I had to actually laugh out loud because she is confirming what she's trying to deny. Somebody says, well, we're depraved. And she says, I don't believe that. That's just the human condition. She's just confirming what she's saying I don't believe in. Depravity is so obvious that we can't get away from it even when we try to get away from it. What you might see as an apple is, to me, just a type of fruit that grows on a tree. Our text verse for today, the righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. May God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought of the day is when judgment falls. Last week we talked about the Nephilim, those who came from the union between the sons of God and the sons of men. We started out with creation, we went into the Garden of Eden, we went to the fall of man. After that we had Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel, and then immediately it goes into the line of Cain. And from the line of Cain, it goes into the line of Adam. After Adam, we went into those four verses speaking about the Nephilim, the fallen people. This is the logical progression of how the Bible is working. And the last thought that we looked at last week said these words, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The world at this time went after hero worship. The men of renown were probably very little different than our own movie stars of today. Although I'm not as political as some here might be, it is no secret which political party most of the Hollywood elite belong to. Now, politics is not religion. But there is a natural progression of both which follows inevitably when power, when fame, or when money is introduced into the equation. And where is it? It is away from the things of God and it is to the things which are opposed to God. The more that we idolize these people watching movies, and I'm not telling you not to watch movies, so don't get that in your head, but the more that we idolize them and start thinking on them, the more our own views become skewed about the things of God. For example, human life, the value of human life is reduced by the people that are out in Hollywood. They are pro-abortion normally, but at the same time, they want to protect nature above humanity. They don't want us cutting down trees. They don't want us burning oil. So there's already this skewed perception of life and we start transmitting that to our thoughts about God. And the concept of personal responsibility, which the Bible speaks of in both Testaments, all the way through the Bible, is subordinated to the collective whole. What does it say in 2 Thessalonians? It says, those who do not work will not eat. But the idea of what happens in a nation, and it doesn't mean just America, it means any nation over the years, starts out with people being personally responsible, and eventually that is subordinated to the collective whole. And a few people support all of the other people of the world. At the same time, true religion is shunned and it's also belittled. And what happens? Tolerance is elevated above the truth. This is just the way it is. And it is the way that it has been throughout human history in culture after culture. What is wicked becomes what is called good and what is good becomes what is called wicked. 
and we come to verse 5, our first verse of the day. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, I have only given you a few verses from the Bible in Hebrew, and I've done that for very specific reasons. Like the first one I gave you was Genesis 1.1. Why did I do that? I want you to hear the first sentence of the Bible in Hebrew, how God spoke the universe into existence. And so I gave you that. It's a Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayin be'et ha'aretz. And then the next sentence that I gave you in Hebrew was the first sentence that God ever spoke to man. Of every tree of the garden, you can freely eat, you shall freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And in Hebrew it said, Mikol etz agan akol tochal ume etzadat tovara lo tochal mimenu. I hope I got that right. It's been a while since I've done that. But today I wanted to read you this particular verse, verse 5 in Hebrew. And the reason why is because it has an alliteration on the R sound, which God is trying to tell us how desperately wicked the world was. And he's doing this through this alliteration of the R sound. So here it is in Hebrew. Vayiyar Adonai ki rabah ra'at ha'adam ba'aretz v'chol yetzer machshibot libo rak ra ho hayom. You can hear that R sound being repeated. And it's important to understand this because it shows God's heart, how he dislikes the wickedness in man. And I'm bringing this up because this is where we are heading in the world today. And God will view us in the same way that he views the world back then, which was destroyed by the flood. And we're going to make these comparisons as we go along today. When the church tries too hard to identify itself with the secular world, eventually only the secular world is left. In other words, we have a church and we, we get rid of the pulpit. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting rid of the pul pulpit. Some people don't like pulpits. But they take the cross down because they don't want to be offensive with it. And then they start saying, well, we are going to ordain women ministers, even though the Bible doesn't allow that. And then they have this and they have that. And they have one thing and another. And pretty soon there is no church left. It's just a social body which is trying to be impressive to itself, but not to God. When the sons of God had intermarried with those outside of the chosen line, which we saw last week, they incorporated their own ungodly practices in with their own lives. Today, here in America, here around the world, instead of Sunday worship, there is Sunday football. Instead of mission work, people go out jogging. Now, there's nothing wrong with football, and there's nothing wrong with jogging. But when these replace our devotion to God, then God is left out of the picture. And when we leave God out, that vacuum must be filled with something. Jesus says this in a parable. Listen to what he says here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now let's think before I finish this. We have a person that's addicted to alcohol, we'll say. And he gets over his alcoholism. His house is clean. This is what Jesus is trying to say. But he doesn't fill it with something good. He doesn't fill it with Jesus Christ. What is the result of what's going to happen to him? We'll finish it up. And when he comes, this is the spirit coming back. He finds the house swept and put in order. The demon left him, the alcoholism. He doesn't fill it with something else. The demon comes back. And it says, then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits 
more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than he was at the first. This alcoholism returns, and along with it comes sexual immorality, along comes, uh, you know, uh, maybe drug use, whatever. Seven more demons worse than the first one all come and infect this person. And this is the state of the world at the time before the flood. After only 1,550 years of man on earth, things had degraded to such an extent that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, it says. But even more terrible than the actual state of things was that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually, only evil continually. In other words, not only the imagination of the people was wicked, but the purposes and desires of them were wicked as well. In Hebrew, the word which is used to describe this state, it, the object of it, of that thought, is being distinguished from the thought itself. Now, that might not be an easy concept to grasp, but a thought may or may not have a real output, but it is evil either way. Here's an example to help you understand this. I have a baseball bat and I think, I am going to go kill that guy with the baseball bat. I don't actually do it, but the thought is really wicked anyway. If I act out on it, that's also wicked. But what the Bible is trying to say is that the people were intent on evil in their thoughts and not just in their actions. When noble or right, thing, when noble or right things are set aside, like truth, like dedication to God, and all these other things, it doesn't matter how great the achievements or how praiseworthy the deeds are. They are void of any moral good. And this is the lesson that we're learning from this particular verse. If you remember the line of Cain back in chapter 4, it developed into an entire culture. It had food production, it had industry, it had uh, arts, it had all of these things, and yet it was devoid of God and therefore it was only evil continually. So let's compare that to America. We have arts, we have movies, we have music, and in fact, we export them to the entire world. We produce enough food in America where we can export it to the whole world. I've lived in countries around the world, I've visited many countries, and I can tell you that I have seen American movies all over there. You hear American music on every channel around the world you eat American food all over the world. And we also have industry. Again, we export our industry to the whole world. When I was overseas, people craved American products. All the things that the world had at this period in Genesis, we also have here in America today. And we even have enough of it to export beyond our borders. But just because we have a praiseworthy culture does not mean that it is properly directed to a relationship with God. When the intent of our actors is to promote a secular agenda, it is evil, even though their acting might be extraordinary. When the intent of musicians is to increase perversion, it is evil, even if their music is complex or stimulating or relaxing or notable in any other way. When the intent of the government in food distribution is to promote an evil political agenda, the fact that people are fed becomes irrelevant to the greater moral issues. This is the state of the pre-flood world where every intent of the thought of the people was only evil continually. And this is the state 
that America and the world is rushing headlong into, even as we boast of the great culture in which we live. The reasons that are behind our actions are as important, if not more important, than the actions themselves. And God knows both of them intimately. As it says in the Bible, he searches the hearts and minds. As Matthew Henry wisely said once, wickedness is then great when great men are wicked. Or as the ancient proverb that David quoted in the book of 1 Samuel says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. This was the state of the world before the flood, but even after the flood, God wiped out the whole world in the flood, even after the flood. In chapter eight, it says this, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. There was no expected improvement in man. However, a new interaction between God and man would exist after the flood. In the Bible, there are seven types of interaction or ways that God interacts with man. They are called dispensations. We talked about this in a sermon a long time ago. Seven dispensations in the Bible. And each of these dispensations or interactions between God and man is given in a logical progression to lead us to what? To lead us to Jesus Christ, our need for him, our complete dependence on him because of the corrupt and wicked state that we have in our heart. In the end, what we have is a dichotomy between God's long-suffering patience it's a cup. It's very, very deep. And we have man's ability and his perseverance in filling up that cup until it eventually overflows and it needs to be poured out in wrath. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Solomon explains this particular state. It says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. To explain that, just think of, in America, we have people that commit a crime and their sentences takes a long time to be executed. Or when they do commit a crime, we'll say murder, they're given a five-year sentence. And people look at that and they say, look at what I can get away with. I can murder somebody and I get a five-year sentence. But if you go out and you hold up a Bible in public, maybe you'll get a 50-year sentence. And so the world is turned upside down. And this is what is going on here at the time of the flood. Because God is merciful and he's patient and man is bent on evil, sin heaps up in a land until there is no remedy. We're going to stop and look at a few times even after the flood that this has happened so you can get a perspective of what the Bible teaches. I'm only going to give you two, but the Bible gives several times that this occurs. The first one is when God spoke to Abraham. He said, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years and also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they will come out with great possessions. We know that to be Egypt there. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age but in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You have this group of people living in the promised land, the land of Canaan, which God has said, I am going to give to you and to your descendants after you. You said this to Abraham, all right? But you have this group of people that is living there. They're sinful people. They haven't called on the name of God, and yet their iniquity is not yet complete. God is giving them 400 years 
to turn to him and to call on him. He's not being judgmental. When we see Joshua coming into the promised land and destroying the towns and destroying the people in there, that is God's judgment being poured out in wrath for 400 years of God's mercy and grace on these people. And yet people read it and they say, look at how bad this is, when they don't have a comprehension of what has actually happened. God was abundantly gracious and merciful to these people and they just kept filling up the cup of God's wrath. Here's the recorded fall of Jerusalem from two chronicles. It says, moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more. And I'm gonna stop right there because we know that the leaders and the priests of the people in America have fallen away from proclaiming God's message. We know this, and this is what's happening. The same thing that happened when judgment came on the people of Israel. It says here, according to, they transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So here God is sending messengers, he's sending prophets, he's sending the, the word to tell them to repent. I love you, I have bought you as my people, I've planted you in this land, and instead they continue to reject them. And this is exactly what is going on in the world today. People in pulpits all around America are proclaiming that judgment is coming if we don't humble our hearts and if we don't turn back to the God of our fathers. It says here, he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they mocked the messengers of God, despised his word, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. And that is, as I said, the state that we are seeing even in the world today. We have Christian TV, we've got Christian radio, we've got pastors that are faithfully preaching the message of Jesus Christ, and yet the world mocks them. They tell them they can't preach out in public anymore, they can't go to the Capitol building and speak the exalted name of Jesus Christ. And what is happening? We are heaping up sins in the land until there will be no remedy. Yes, God judges sin. When the cup of his indignation is full, the only option left is for man to drink the fruit of the vine which he himself has cultivated. Anyone who thinks that God loves us more than he hates our sin does not understand the nature of God. And they do not understand that the road that we are heading down is going to intersect with the avenues of judgment and of destruction. And both of these lead directly to his hall of justice, which is his great throne, where every one of us is going to have to meet him face to face someday. Verse six, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. This is the very first time that the Bible says that God is sorry about something or he regretted something. And the terminology that is used there leads most people to immediately think that God somehow changes either mentally or relationally towards us. In fact, very few people that I know can see these verses any other way. But the force of the statement that the Lord was sorry needs to be drawn together from the explanation that he was grieved in his heart. In other words, God being sorry does not presume any change in him or in his intent. The Bible uses a human term, it's called anthropomorphism. 
anthropomorphism. It's a human term and it applies that to God so that we can understand his feelings towards our sin. It's not a changing feeling. His very nature is being expressed in a way that we can comprehend. Verse seven, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. When God says, I will destroy man, it uses a term there which is comparable to wiping a dish completely clean or maybe, maybe erasing a chalkboard so that absolutely nothing is left. God created man and God gave man dominion over the earth and over its creatures and they would share in the destruction. If you love puppies like I do, anybody knows me, I go to bed with a whole bunch of puppies in my bed every night. This might sound cruel because we know how tender and precious they are. But animals are not moral creatures. The animals were given to man and when man changed relationally to God, those animals fell under the relational change. Let's think of it this way. Man and what he was given is on the positive side of God. I'm not saying that this is God here, but we're on the positive side of God. When we sin against God, when we heap up our sins, we move to the negative side of God. God hasn't changed, just like this column here hasn't changed. And the life over which we exercise dominion, meaning the animals and all of the plant life and everything else that God has given us, all of that moves with him. And here is a very good example so that you can process this completely. Israel was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. The Jewish people were a part of the Roman Empire. When they re rebelled against the Romans, the Romans came in and they destroyed not only the people, but they destroyed everything in the land. They cut down all of the trees, they destroyed all of the cities, everything was destroyed. And it was not Rome that changed in relation to Israel. It was Israel that changed in relation to Rome. And every part of the land was affected. The emperor, however, sitting up in Rome, was not affected by what happened. He may have said, I am sorry in my heart that Israel was ever allowed to be a part of the Roman Empire, but the change was in Israel. It was not in Rome. And likewise, in the Bible, the change is in man. It is not in God. Man was no longer worthy of the beautiful house that was built for him, and so both the house and the man were removed simultaneously. But that does bring us to our next major point today, which is grace is to be found. Verse eight, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Throughout the entire Bible, when you're reading these long narratives, there are these sentences which are inserted into these narratives, which act as pivots for that narrative. And this is one of them. And I can tell you that I will read this narrative and I'll come to this verse and I will actually sometimes break down into tears to think of the state of the world. And it says that Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. It's like reading the book of Ruth. I was reading it just a couple of nights ago. And I was thinking, this is God's word. This is his word to mankind. And he took real people that really existed and he used their lives, their marriage, their deaths, and all of these things in the most beautiful, loving story that has ever been written in human history. And I was reading it and I was in tears as I was going to bed that night thinking about the wonderful grace of God and what he has done and how it points to Jesus Christ. 
Destruction here is promised and destruction is coming. But in the midst of it, God remembers his faithful children. And this is not just a story about the past, about the flood. It is relevant to us right here and right now. As the world is, and we can look around and tell, sliding into moral degradation and destruction is certainly coming. We don't need the Bible even to tell us this. We just know it. We just need to think it through. But we can still be assured of the promises of God. And we personally may not be spared during these times of trouble. In other words, when a calamity happens, a, a tsunami or an earthquake, we may die. But Jesus Christ is an ark in which we are secure, even in the most violent storms that go on around us. This is one thing that I'm real peculiar about. The Bible never promises us freedom from disaster. It never promises us prosperity. And you know me, I am not one to preach a prosperity gospel. But we are promised that the Lord never forgets us. And he is abundantly faithful in keeping his promise. This veil of tears that we are walking through is exactly that. It is a veil that we have to pass through. And on the other side, whether we live or we die, are streets of gold and the light of glory. Albert Barnes says this, Whither grace comes, their merit cannot be. Noah did not earn God's grace, and neither can we, but we can receive it in advance of the time that it's needed. When the whirlpool starts swirling around and pulling down, or when the winds really begin to blow and things start to topple over, or when the tide begins to rise, we who have received God's grace in advance will be safely delivered beyond what is an impassable calamity for the other people who would not heed the call of their master. And that brings us to verse number nine. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This marks the third genealogy in the Bible. The first was the heavens, way back in Genesis 2-4, when God created man. The second one we did just a couple weeks ago, which was the genealogy of Adam. And then we come to this one today. God is really right there, right from the beginning, working in human history. And he is developing this amazing plan, which began 6,000 years ago, and which he has carefully sculpted to show us his heart. Noah's genealogy is given right here because he now will be the central figure in biblical history. And why? It's because it says he was a just man. Of all of the people that were on earth at that time, he alone was considered righteous. So what made him righteous? Was it something that he did? The answer, by necessity, is no. And at the same time, by necessity, the answer is yes. There is nothing that we can outwardly do. Remember we talked a few moments ago about our works and how sin infects us and so our works are not acceptable to God. But at the same time, the Bible says that righteousness comes from, comes from what? Righteousness comes from one thing, from faith. That's exactly right. Faith is faith. Forced faith is not faith. Faith is something that springs up from the inward soul of man and it is a volitional act of the will. Yes, we're corrupt, but we have faith and that is a demonstration of free will. And Noah was a man of faith. He was waiting for the Messiah. He knew that he would come despite 
the wicked state of the world around him. And this faith that he possessed leads to the very second description of him, which says he was perfect in his generations. Of all of the people on the earth at that time, he was the only man of faith. And his perfection was granted to him because of his faith. Just as we saw in Adam's naming of Eve, just as we saw in Abel's offering, and just as we are going to see throughout the entire Bible, it is faith which brings us into a right relationship and a close walk with God. And faith is an act of the free will. Noah possesses faith, and the very next recorded thought is that Noah walked with God. Just like his grandfather Enoch, remember it said the same thing about his grandfather just a couple sermons ago. And you might remember that Enoch's walk of faith is what resulted in him being translated directly to heaven without ever seeing death. It's that type of faith that God is looking for in his fallen creatures. And that brings us to our third major thought today, which is yes, even in judgment. I know, I said this a little earlier, and it's kind of a downer when we hear about wickedness, but the Bible tells us to consider the whole counsel of God. And today's verses simply include the fact that God hates sin. God hates wickedness, and he hates violence. And these things do not escape God's notice. There's no way to sugarcoat this without getting a whole bunch of sugar all over it. And so today, we just have to leave the sugar out of it. Verse 11, the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In contrast, here we had Noah of the past three verses speaking of his righteousness. The corrupt state of the rest of the world was evident. It says the earth was corrupt before God. This is not a state of the literal ground down here. Instead, it is a state of the man who represents the earth. The earth, or all men, was corrupt before God, and his corruption was acted out in violence. And I assure you that this corruption and this violence included the worshiping of God as well. They no longer called on the name of the Lord. Instead, they worshiped the creation or they worshiped false gods. They worshiped anything rather than the creator. And their actions spilled out in contempt of him. They were actively and openly defying God to his face. And once again, we see it all over the world today. We see it happening everywhere. As a challenge over the next seven days, what I would like you to do is to simply go to any news site that links articles from other news sites like The Drudge Report or Breitbart.com or any of them. And what I'd like you to do is just to look at the titles. Don't even read the articles. Just look at the titles once a day and see if what you read there is not represented completely and perfectly in the two verses that we just read. Paying lip service to God in general has nothing to do with faith. Women laying on abortion tables will go home and they will say how much they love God right after murdering a child that was created in God's image. Any politician can stand up and they can say, oh, God bless America, or I am a Christian, on the same day that he will vote for or approve a bill condoning open homosexuality in the military. And any leader, 
can tickle the ears of the people with charming remarks about God while enacting legislation which deprives Christians of the very rights that they proclaim to defend. None of this is pleasing to God. What is stated in Genesis 6 simply reflects the world in which we live. And the result is verse 13. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Destruction. That is the inevitable result of our actions. The verse records the end of all flesh has come before me. This is not speaking of the destruction which is coming. Instead, it's speaking of God's tolerance of man's actions, which will lead to that destruction. And a good way of thinking about this is Angelica here, she uh, has a car and she comes home late and dad takes away the car keys. And then the second time she comes home late and dad takes away the car keys. And when she comes home late the third time, he says, the end, that's it. He takes the car away and he sells the car. That is the way that this is being portrayed in the Bible. God's buttons had been pushed far enough and he was now moved to act. The entire world was to be destroyed. And if Noah didn't find grace in the eyes of the Lord, there would have been no you and there would have been no me. And as the world rushes into the coming tribulation period that the Bible speaks of, very few people are going to come out the other end of that tribulation period. 700 years before Jesus Christ, Isaiah wrote these words about the tribulation period, which is still future to us. It says, I will punish the wicked for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. And then he makes this statement, I will make man scarcer than pure gold. What is gold now? 13, 14, 1500 dollars an ounce? It's, it's a very, $1,700 an ounce, he says. It's a very rare commodity on earth. And at the end of the tribulation period, man will be scarcer than pure gold. The Jewish historian Josephus gives us a little bit of information that is not recorded in the Bible about God's judgment. He says that Adam actually predicted that the world would be destroyed twice, once by water and once by fire. Now, the Bible does bear that out. It does say that both of those uh, destructions are coming, but it doesn't tell us that Adam actually predicted that. That's something we get from Josephus. The water destruction is coming in the chapters ahead in the book of Genesis, and the fire destruction may very well be coming soon to a cataclysm near you. But that brings us right to our fourth thought today. The grace of the Lord is to be found. Noah's great-great or great-grandfather, Enoch, walked by faith, and he was translated directly to heaven and in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us that we should also walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And two chapters later in this same book, Paul gives us immensely exciting news for those who will be alive, Christians who will be alive at some future point. Here's what he says. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In other words, every Christian who has died before us is safe and secure with Jesus Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Noah was carried through the flood in an ark. Enoch was taken directly to heaven. And eight other people mentioned from Adam down to Noah had died before the destruction of the flood. All of them, every one of them was saved from God's judgment. The parallel for this, for us here is this. Some Christians, the majority of them, will die naturally before the Lord comes. But there will be some alive at the time just before the tribulation when the rapture occurs, just as Enoch was. And after that moment, the time of tribulation will come. But Israel, the people of Israel, just like Noah, will be carried through the flood. So you see the parallel of those three occurrences with what will happen in the future. Even in today's wicked world, grace is to be found. Some people say that we should not hope for the rapture. But I got to tell you, this is incorrect thinking. They say the reason why they say that is because, oh, there's so many unsaved people in the world. The problem is that there will always be so many unsaved people in the world. When the rapture comes, and I tell you what, may it be soon, I will be jumping to be ahead of the rest of you at the call of Jesus Christ. Grace is to be found, but you had better find it now before the time of trouble comes. Because when you're looking for food, just enough food to feed yourself, hard choices have to be made. And I tell you, most people will fail at the choices that are gonna be made. Now, I wanna tell you, I'm done with today's notes, but I would like to ask you to think over one of the thoughts that I gave you earlier. I said that God's long-suffering patience is a cup which is deep, but man's ability and his perseverance in filling that cup necessitates that it eventually needs to be poured out in wrath. In the Bible, there is a garden called Gethsemane. In that garden, which means oil press, the sins of the world were pressed into a cup and a man was asked to drink out of that cup. Not just a sip, he was asked to drink it right down to its dregs and he cried out in his anguish, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup of God's wrath, which is filled to overflowing with the sins of our own lives was drained by an innocent lamb so that we could be given eternal life. And now we have one of only two choices to make. The first is to accept the payment that he accomplished on our behalf, or the second is to meet God face to face on our own merits. The choice is ours and the choice is an eternal one. The cup which is before God is an angry mixture of judgment and condemnation. So I would ask you to choose wisely. 10 generations is all it took until evil encompassed the earth. The Lord came down and he gave a look and saw only one man of worth. The intent of the rest was evil always and their wickedness was immensely great. So the Lord determined to end their days. Destruction would come, it would no longer wait. He was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart that it was so. Man's actions are what diminished his worth. He acted out in evil as if God didn't know. But the Lord spoke, I will destroy it all. I will utterly annihilate my beautiful blue ball. But, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Only this one man had cherished his word. Noah found grace and he would be secure because he had faith 
and he was just. The destruction was coming, that was for sure. The rest of the men would return to the dust. Noah walked with God while evil did abound. The world was corrupt and violence filled the earth. It's happening again. Just take a look around. We're rejecting the God of infinite worth. Stand fast like Noah and have faith through it all. Your faith will deliver you when the Lord makes his call. Will you be ready at the rapture or left behind when the Lord makes that call? Jesus is coming, that much is sure. Then on the world, destruction will fall. For those of us who will be gone away, in the presence of the Lord, we will eternally be. I, for one, can't wait for that day. All I want is for Jesus to see. Just as Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, the last verse of the Bible offers us the exact same blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the gift of eternal life, which is through the work of the person of Jesus Christ, how he gave his own life so that we could be restored to you. He lived the perfect life. He gave it up in death on a cross, on a cross of pain, so that your wrath would be, would be appeased at the sins of our lives. Thank you for that transfer. And I pray that anybody that has never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that's listening here today would call on him and would accept that gift and be freed from the penalty of the sin which we all bear in our own lives. Thank you for Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.